0: Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by FM Investments. Go to fminvest.com to learn more about their treasury series of ETFs, where you can pick a certain maturity, and also their brand new corporate bond ETFs. That's fminvest.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show
1: about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Welcome to Animal Spirits with... Michael and Ben. Michael, I've made the case that the bond market has been more interesting and exciting than the stock market for the past eh, two to three years. Is that fair?
1: Nah. With the
0: movement in rates and there's more interest in the bond market. How does that sound? If if I'm judging by our inbox of people asking questions, bond market questions or yield questions are at all-time
1: highs. Bonds are back.
0: Yes, because there's some yield. And I think people are having to be more thoughtful. uh, more thoughtful about their bond allocation and well what do I how about this I've, and people now know if i'm t- if i'm getting more yield that means there's more risk or cuz if you had a long maturity or a long duration in 2022 you got smoked so i think people now understand that like oh okay if rates rise i can get killed just and i'm just adding a little bit more yield so i think it's interesting and there's now way more etfs available that you can go i want to target this specific duration credit quality, uh, geography, whatever it is, especially in the bond land that you couldn't really do before.
1: No, you can get you can get
0: surgical now. It's pretty incredible. When I, when I was in the institutional world, I remember it was you had bonds, which was the ag, or bond or ladders. plus, right? Okay. Yeah, or yeah. ladders. But it was, yeah. or it was like ag plus. And now there's yeah. so many different variations you can do, which is a win for investors. Absolutely. And one of the people who's been sort of shepherding us in this direction that we've had him on, I don't know, five or six times now, Alex Morris from FM Investments, and they've continued to build out their suite of products there with the the benchmark series of Treasury bonds at every single maturity. And the new thing they're doing now, which I think he said, are we breaking news here? Kind of. Anyway, we're the first ones talking about it. Is their corporate bonds? So they now have two and three and ten-year corporate bond ETFs. Sounds like other ones are coming, and we talk about that that space where you're getting a little bit higher yield for maybe some higher risk. So. Here's our talk with Alex Morris from FM Investments about their new corporate bond ETFs.
1: We're joined today by Alex Morris. Alex is the Chief Investment Officer at FM Investments. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. All right, the, we're going to talk about bonds today. Uh, the 10 year treasury today, it's January 17th, stands at 4.1%, and it's gone, it's traveled a lot and also gone nowhere. We've round tripped a lot of the big move that we made over the last 12 months or so. So the 10-year sits at 401. You have the two-year still way above at 4.3. I want to talk to you about like expectations, what the market is pricing in, why there's still so much of an inversion. So I guess to to narrow it in, what is the market pricing in terms of uh, rate cuts for 2024?
2: So you guys thought we'd start with an easy one. I thought that was the, the whole plan here. I'm just uh, right into it. Um, You know, I think that the first problem is put aside what number of rate cuts are or how big and the magnitude of each of those cuts. The bond market is doing something that's a little unique, at least in our investing experience, which is it's taking a cue from the equity markets book and pricing in a heck of a lot of enthusiasm and aspirations. And that's kind of rare for the bond market because the bond market is the, you know, cynical, less attractive cousin to the equity markets. And, you know, say what you will about folks on desks, I, I, I defend you know, to the death, the better-looking bond traders out there. But I think that what you're seeing is this weird, you know, met, sort of melding of how do you price in expectations that for once are non-zero. So if, if you looked at Fed futures uh, bets, which I think are a great thing to look at because they're always wrong, like they they have a hundred percent hit rate of being wrong. And if you looked at them, you know, December 31st, they were pricing in six rate cuts. If you looked at them, December 4th. All of a sudden, it was, it was five. And then after the Fed came out and, and sort of repeated what's a pretty good cadence of a bunch of noise in the market from individual governors, then some signal that follows two or three big articles that come out was very clear. Higher for longer, You know, although the economy shows elements of getting to where we want it to be, you should not expect rate cuts until the second half of the year. And they made that very clear. And I think that the treasuries are now starting to actually price out some of that optimism and price in you know the actual messaging which is rate cuts start july ish and you should expect to see 3 to 4 ish you know maybe more conservative and and that 3 or 4 will depend upon size and i think there's an aspiration amongst bond traders that those cuts will be 75 basis points and this will be a quick ride down my suspicion is the fed has other other fish to fry and that we're going to see you know 25s and 50s and little tests to make sure they don't break anything
1: so this is why this is why I asked that question because I sort of agree with you in the sense that even if we do get six rate cuts, so right now Fed funds are at five to five and a quarter. The 10-year, as I mentioned, it's already down to four one. It got as low as three eight. So, where would Fed funds rates need to settle at? Like, do we not expect a term premium to come back? Do we not expect a complete uninversion such that the 10 year should be trading higher than the two-year? And with the 10-year, Already down to four one again. It was down to three eight, but has bounced pretty dramatically since then. It does sound like you think the market
2: is getting ahead of itself—the bond market. That is, I think the bond market has gotten ahead of itself, right? In general, now that it is, it's, it's already there, and that if you look at the the term premium, we're not going to see it in twenty twenty four, and it's simply because the the short end of the curve is so you know, removed so I, I, attached to the Fed funds rate, unless there's a big dislocation between those two. And I hope there's not. I think there will be you know, cohesion. Fed funds will come down. The shortening of the curve will come down. And that'll be two and shorter will start to follow. Allow me to stand up for <laughs> the bond market real quick here. And I think the bond
0: market has been offsides a lot. But if if we have three scenarios, one of them is, is growth stays high. The other one is growth is kind of anemic. And, and then the third one is growth slows quite a bit. And we have a recession or something. Isn't two out of those three scenarios, the Fed does lower rates quicker than people think? Or, or faster than, so I don't, isn't the the
2: probability actually that they do lower rates faster than people are assuming? I guess the question is, what are they assuming, right? If you look at Fed fund futures, you know, folks are, you know, are siding more with the UBSs of the world who thought we'd be sitting back at 250 by the end of the year. And that feels like a pretty abrupt, you know, drive to get down there. And, and, and the thing that'll be interesting is we we look at the Fed hitting its 2% target. We look at the core numbers that came out that were, you know, 3.9 headlines of the 3.4, four Right we forget that th- it's not deflation that's happening it's just disinflation like we're still running things at a pretty high level of inflation and it's not like we hit two and the fed says great news rates go back to zero if they did that inflation would spike back up and i think that's the the part that folks are forgetting we're tackling this from the other way around this time right in the last decade decade and a half we were you know playing with things to kind of keep things at full employment keep things as as high as 2% right not doing the opposite, which is trying to take things off of a high of 9 or 10 and trying to bring them down. And the Fed has no no direct incentive, I'd argue, to r- r- cut rates other than their political, perhaps, motives, to cut rates faster. Because if you can keep rates at, say, 3, and I'm not saying that number is right, but let's just assume for a moment short rates are 3, and inflation stays where you want and employment unemployment stays where you want, there's not a really good reason to cut them to zero other than political motivations. And I think the Fed is going to be like really sensitive about that.
0: Yeah, that, that, I agree. That's the best case scenario. And I think the 0% thing, unless we had a calamity, that's that's off the table. And I think getting back to a 3 is actually good news if we could do it and sort of thread the needle. The other one I was looking at today is it's been 15 months since we had an inversion. So the the 3-month the went above the 10-year, if that's how we want to describe or use for an inversion. Some people use the 210. I'm using the 3-month and 10-year. If it's been 15 months, and let's say the Fed does slowly but surely, stair step approach, bring short rates down, and the ten-year stays where it is, or it goes up a little bit this year, whatever, and that three-month goes below the 10, can we just can we just forget the yield curve inversion as a signal this time around? If it uninverts, I think so. It, I mean, because it's I don't know, it's it's been so long since it happened. And I know people always say it happens on a lag. Give it 12 to 18 months or something. But is this the one time where the yield curve inversion really didn't tell us much of anything because ben, you got to give it
1: 75 you got to give it 75 months. come on <laughs> that, but that
2: it seems like this time it, it didn't really tell us anything. yeah we got to give it a year and then it's two and then you got to give it decades and it's you know you, you got to give it three empires past. Everything all is all a, a lag, yes yeah, exactly. I, I think the answer here is it probably doesn't. It's because we jacked up the curve, right like we the goal here was to destroy something more so than create it, right? Normally, we're stimulating the economy. Well, this time we did that something very different. We literally just printed money and mailed it to your mailbox, right? The stimulation happened in a much more direct-to-consumer approach than historically the Fed has, has operated. Like, they didn't count on a pandemic. They certainly didn't count on a response of trillions of dollars going out in the mail. And so the the stimulatory effect happened X from the, the Fed. And now the Fed is dealing with that, you know, the outcomes of all of that, you know, capital printing that happened. So I think this time this inversion doesn't really have the same meaning. And you know, if the ten year was trading at two, and all of a sudden the uninversion happened as a sudden and unexpected crash of the short end, I'd argue, okay, that tells you something. But we're now talking about controlling when the front end comes down and and thinking about July versus August sort of time frame. So I don't know that an uninversion in an orderly manner is a harbinger of recession or the same uninversion that we would be talking about in 94. Maybe 94 is probably the closest example, but certainly not in GFC in 2008 and not in some of the other crises that you know appear in the treasury curve over time.
1: We've been talking a lot about treasuries. It's the benchmark rate, it's the risk for rate, it's what everything prices off of, mortgages, credit cards, corporate bonds. Uh, on the corporate side, one of the things that's surprising to me, anyway, is how little stress there's been in corporate America, uh, and there's good reasons for this. You know, companies did a lot of good work refinancing their debt in 2021 when interest rates were effectively at at zero, um, and so they were good there. But there's been there's been very little in the way of like blowouts, and what I what I mean by that is the difference in spreads that investors are demanding between corporate bonds, and risk treasuries. And even right now, the spread is, I'm looking at the um, ISB of a U.S. corporate index option adjustment spread, which is, again, just, just spreads between corporates and treasuries. It's, it's 1%, which is about as tight as it could, about as tight as it's ever been, say for 2021. So talk about what you're seeing on the corporate side of the equation.
2: So you're right, you're seeing... Corporates that might actually be priced to perfection, right? Which is kind of an odd thing to say given the treasury curve inversion discussion we just had. But the corporate world has done the thing that we've been demanding of it for, for decades, which is a certain amount of fiscal prudence. They did appropriately refinance their debt. They haven't taken on extraordinarily high levels of current debt. And you know most of the the big names that we think of, right? When we think of stocks today, tend to be tech companies that 25 years ago needed that next debt issuance to make payroll on alternate Fridays, and that's not true anymore, right? Those companies are are massively profitable. They're great generators and curators of capital. They've done a good job in creating an atmosphere where it makes sense. I think last time we were talking about this, we talked a little bit about the the phenomenon of not having zombie companies in the U.S., at least not in the same way you know you do in Europe, and. And banks and lenders and and the bond market in general has done a good job of eliminating business models that just require constant debt loading to continue to grow. So as a result, what's left? And yeah, when you look at those those indices, they're kind of built a little wacky, right? Most of those indices are market cap weighted, so you tend to see the more debt you issue, the greater you appear in those indices, which means there's but but it's it's still but it's but it's still a good proxy for yeah, it's it's a fair proxy. Absolutely. And you're going to see a lot of it, particularly in the finance space, which is a good proxy because those loans get refinanced quickly. And there's a lot of turnover in that space, right? That's the, the direct lending market, essentially. And as a result, I think, you know, you're seeing that corporate world is pretty stable. And we're saying that the government is, that they're much more stable than folks historically have asked them to be. And that's even true if you, if you were to edge up in the high yield market, those spreads are not as wide as one might otherwise expect. So when you, when you say price for per- perfection, that's what you mean, the
0: spreads. The spread levels where we're at now. That's your price to perfection indicator? That's the metric
2: I would use is, you know, are, are you there? And you look at the stability of this, you know, versus news uh, articles that come out versus shocks in the market. And this spread hasn't moved a tremendous amount. And it certainly hasn't gone back to some of the historical levels that it can blow out to when something goes wrong. Like there just hasn't been a route in the IG market.
1: There's no perfect forward-looking indicator that if you just knew one thing it would tell you what happens one month from now, six months that doesn't exist. But I've said this in the past, correct me if you if you feel differently, that if I could just look at one thing to determine the health of markets today at a single point in time, I would use bond
2: spreads. I think that's pretty fair. Um, you know, it's hard as a PM to say that there's only ever one, but Bond spreads are a pretty good broad indicator of how folks are feeling about a lot of things all mashed up into one. It's hard to ascribe direct motive to it, but it's a pretty good overall um, indicator of health. And I think that's you- So you just, you me- you just
1: are- mentioned that, yeah, bonds are, bonds are priced for perfection. And certainly the market is pricing in a soft landing and rate cuts. And if we don't see one or two of those things, the market will have to re- re-rate and it will probably do so pretty quickly as it
2: usually does. I think so. I mean that I've been pro soft landing from for a long time, and this is kind of like weird, almost fetish in the market to like find reasons why it can't happen, which feels more like forecasters trying to prove themselves right than it is an honest appraisal of what's going on in the market. Like we've done a good job of encouraging companies and all market participants to behave well and build better companies, and we've worked hard through policy and. And practice in the financial and real economy to build resiliency, and it's worked. And it's to some extent, I I wonder if some folks are looking for ghosts where they don't exist. It isn't to say that we couldn't screw this up. There's a lot of things that could go wrong, and, and plenty of books and articles written on that every day. But this is one where I wonder if the the best case scenario isn't actually, or a pretty good case scenario, isn't the most likely. And some of it is just wanting to will that to be the case, and some of it is we we're relying on years of good work and learning from past crises and you know that we're still going to make mistakes new and hiccups will happen we're going to step on banana skins but it seems like we've done a pretty good job of addressing some of the old ones and we have some companies that are pretty healthy and the consumers who are you know getting back to their old ways if you look at credit card debt you know loan delinquencies on, on cars some of the things are starting to creep back in but none of them have spiked to new historic levels or in a way where I think the alarm bells are going off, and and the bond market is showing you that, the equity market is showing you that, right? If you look at the number of forecasters who tell you that NDX would be up fifty percent last year, it was zero, right? And sure enough, it did. And folks seem to be upset that the equity market might have another good year in twenty twenty four, as if that was a bad thing. Like we're all in this game. We buy stocks to go up. Like that's the one thing they're designed to do. So I I kind of question, like, why are folks going out
0: of their way? I made and, and, money, but I would have rather been right.
2: Yeah, I'd rather Almost. be right and broke. Come on, like that's just a s- statement we don't make around here. So I, I, I question why folks are are looking for all these opportunities other than for the forecast and historical models to be right. I appreciate it's hard to dissociate yourself from the data in a very data-intensive world and, and objectively so and, and objectively good for being so. But that said, this time I think these other metrics have sound rationale for why they look the way they look. It's a consistent rationale together it's just not a historical one that we've seen before. You know, it's not that this time is different because I it to be. It's, this time just actually is different. Michael has
0: his desert island signal as the yield spreads. Is there any world in which we could not see- Not a signal. Like, not a signal. It's indicator. Indicator. Sorry. Indicator. So desert island, I'm going to take this one indicator. Is there any world where spreads don't blow out even if we do have a, an economic slowdown? So let me paint the scenario here. So- one, I think one of the reasons we didn't go into a recession like everyone thought we would in 2023 is because consumers were had repaired their balance sheets for 10 years following the GFC and then supercharged their balance sheets for 18 to 24 months during the pandemic. And I think that a lot of that is the reason that we're, we're coming in for a soft landing potentially did did enough corporations refinance at, at lower interest rate debts and now are earning a ton of money on their T-bills to the point where maybe spreads don't blow out as much as people would think historically? Or do you think that's kind of scenario where if the economy slows, those spreads have to blow out just because people have the flight to safety?
2: It's hard to really say, and here's why. One, the, if things get bad, the spread should blow out, and that should be the indicator. And it should blow out because folks are looking at the indicator saying, this is too tight. This needs to go other way, right? So it's like metrics managing behavior there. But if the the question is if that were to happen where would the T bill be, right? So the spread is relative to treasury. So if the treasuries were to keep coming in, right, and the Fed just kept on that path, then yes, it would have to start to really really move. But if corporate rates ticked up 200 basis points and short rates ticked up 200 basis points, the spread would be the same, right? It just would be the whole story got elevated. And that's where, you know, I, I get a little Look, like I didn't get a crystal ball uh, when I left uh, you know, trading in PM school, so it's hard, hard to tell. But I think it would be interesting to see if that were to happen, would the treasuries follow suit and what would be happening in the treasury market? Because the treasuries, as we said, I think they will stay connected to the Fed fund rates. That doesn't mean they always will, though. There's always that possibility that there is some breakage. You know, it's not going to be in the thirty or the sixty or the ninety, but it could be in the one year, the two, the three, the five, right? As you go further out on out the curve, where you may see some dislocation between the two, and, and that's the big unknown. And I think that's the the indicator and the risk that folks aren't really spending a lot of time thinking or talking about because it's been so historically accurate. But we've changed the historical inputs now; like we're doing this a different way. And if that stays tight, then I think you know you you will see that blowout. If that can disconnect, you might see less of it. Uh, that said. You know, I think we should remember that when we look at the spreads today and folks have done well, we still when we buy IG debt, we're looking at what are increasingly higher coupons and that's all not such a bad thing, right and it's not so high that these companies can't stabilize it. They can't you know maybe some of the dividend rates come down a little bit maybe not you know maybe some of the reinvestment and stock repurchases will come down, but we haven't seen signs of that yet but their profitability has tended to go up and they've been able will be able to absorb rates from say going from 100 to 150 basis points to two three 400 basis points on the two to three year you know ig spread and it's going to be fine and that it, it it's not going to actually meaningfully impact those companies ability to repay or to seek new capital in the market so as really that spread to get back to that point if the treasury stay in lockstep there's no reason for the spread to go if the treasuries do what we expect them to do then that spread will will inherently need to blow out some
1: all right, Alex, this, this series is called Talk Your Book, so it's about time we talk your book. Last week, there was big news in the ETF world. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the Bitcoin ETF, the spot Bitcoin ETF that finally started trading. But there was also some innovation in the bond market, your corner of the market. Talk about what you all are launching and some of the innovation that you're bringing to you, a kind of sleepy, boring market.
2: Yeah, I, I was expecting to say that Z2, and Z10 came out. Oh, yeah, and then some people did some things with, <laughs> with Bitcoin. Um, you know, but he also died with us. But yeah, here in the sleeping on the bomb market, you know, we've talked about a bunch on this show about uh, the U.S. Benchmark Series, which is duration, you know, very specific duration control by investing in, in treasuries. Uh, we could do that by buying single treasuries. Can't do that in the IG space, but we wanted to give folks that second access where you could have that same duration control and exposure to the market. So when we talk about that spread, that spread is versus the two-year market. That's a very narrow band. And you can't just easily buy it today a credit ETF uh, that does that. So we decided it was time to take what we didn't benchmark, but move it up to IG. And that meant rethinking some of the, the way credit indices were built. So if you take at U2, U2 buys the two-year on-the-run treasury. That is the benchmark. That's what we see on the yield curve. That's what you want. When you look at those spreads, they're versus two years, which is usually a year and a half to two and a half years of actual credit, right? None of the other stuff that you'd see in the ag. So we built an ETF that does just that. So if you were to buy and sell U2 and Z2 in the right proportions or the right go the right way, you would be betting on the spread widening or uh, contracting, which is something that historically you haven't been able to do outside of being a large institutional investor. If you want access to the two-year credit market, three-year credit market, the 10-year credit market, you can now get that directly, and you're going to get a much more current experience of what's going on in the market. And the way we deliver that to you is by, one, buying things that are in that narrow duration band, but also... We worked with ICE to build an index that is equally weighted. So you are really toning down that two-thirds of your exposure that really sits in bank fin and you know toning up what is like a real state of the market. Because buying more bank fin just gives you more bank fin. It doesn't actually tell you more of what's going on in the, the whole wholeness so of you, the market. So you actually created your own index for this. You didn't use something that was already created. Yeah, so we looked at all the, the ETFs that are out there and said, well, that didn't work. We looked at all the indices that are out there and said, well, that didn't work. So we, we called up ICE, um, who is, provides indices for the benchmark series, and said, this is our problem. This is what we're trying to solve. This is what we do in the SMA book we have today, you know, for a few hundred clients. We want to put that in. And since we don't get to decide what's in the index, otherwise it wouldn't be a fair index, we went out and we worked with ICE to figure out what are the rules and here's the sort of mechanical process that we go through to help design the core of the portfolios. And then we can add some, you know, the last mile on our own. Uh, But ICE was able to reconstruct that. And the first big step was doing something that doesn't exist in the bond world. We just equally weighted it, right? We usually hear about that in the equity world, right? The equal weighted SPX will outperform the market cap weighted SPX. But there's a simple principle kind of works in the bond world as well. So we equal weighted it by issuer. because we think folks actually want to own, you know, a more... Diverse set of issuers, not just more stuff from the same issuer, and just ramp it up. And it turns out that gives you a more current coupon. I don't want to get too far off
1: of off of what you guys are doing, but that's just an interesting point. Why? I wonder why there isn't like an equal weighted
2: AG index. Have you Have you looked at that? So if we look at the AG in general, right, the AG is astronomical, and it's got so many different items in it. You know, between mortgages and agencies and high yield and investment grade, it would be hard to choose the equal weighting measure given they all kind of have their own underlying differences and different bases, right? But the question I guess would argue within each of those sectors, why has no one done an equal weighted version or an issuer weighted version, which is what we do is equal issuer weighted version. And I think the answer is bonds are sleepy as as you said. It's this corner, it's this massive but sleepy corner. There's never been a need for real innovation there. You either bought an actively managed mutual fund and you, you hope you like the manager or you bought AGG. And there was very little room or interest to do anything in between. Rates were zero. It was hard to do, right? It, it seemed like you needed $10 billion to make this thing worthwhile. And it turns out all of those things weren't inherently true. At least they're not true today. And you know we had some success in innovating with benchmarks. So we, we tried to apply that same logic of how do we take the products that we want to offer and not make them good informational indicators, but make them good investments. And the trick for us was this.
1: So what is the investment case for these products? And I'm not asking you to, tell, to advocate for why the two-year is better than the 10-year or anything like that. But why would an investor want to target a specific duration for corporate bonds? What's the case?
2: So it's the same argument as you'd see on the in the yield curve itself. You want a certain you know, duration, has a certain risk that gets carried along with it, has a certain volatility implication as things start to move, has a certain spread to treasuries. You want to target that because you like the attractiveness of that and it fits in with your overall asset allocation and mentality, right? You, this is where you're positioning your investors. You like what a bond manager is doing, but you watch them getting too short. You know, you're not getting enough return out of that. And I get that total return component of it. So this will allow you to, to correct for that. Or you can just make very simply the bet. I like this part of the credit curve. I like this spot on the yield curve. And I can now directly put that into my client's portfolios. And many folks do this today. They just have to cycle through hundreds of bonds a year and do a lot of that trading on their own. And it's it's hard. And indeed, we do this for you know, lots of institutional accounts, lots of retail SMA accounts. We recognize that we're spending a lot of time generating a lot of transactions, but we could do that heavy lifting in one place. And now we could deliver folks that same level of precision, you the know, same level of mandate control, but without having to recreate the wheel inside every account every time. And I assume these... Because since this is investment grade, would
0: these be mostly S&P 500 like companies that are in the portfolio? Are there any, would there be any surprises or is that pretty much what you'd expect? Those, those larger, bigger corporations that are more name
2: brand? Yeah, it's larger, bigger means probably going to go outside of just pure SPX, you know, into more of the the Russell 1000 space because you'll, you'll see more of them, but they tend to be relatively concentrated, you know, versus some of the other portfolios to see They'll hold a few hundred names, not a few thousand. Um, And that's because we're doing that equal weighted by issuer, not by issuance. And and there wouldn't be any real surprises there. I think the surprise for some folks would be as you go further out the curve to realize that most corporations issue debt, you know, inside of 10 years. There's not a lot of stuff that sits outside 10, 20, 30, right? It's just there are some, but ask yourself, what did Apple look like? 30 years ago, it was a very different company. Uh, IBM and GE were very different companies 30 years ago. Uh, And if you did that 30 years before then, that would have been very different. So there's a lot more concentration there. Um, The other thing that I think is really important to talk about when you think about this is if you bought through your debt three years ago, those rates were 1%, right? And if you now saw what the spreads were today, you're going to get a better yield. But it's good to remember that yield and coupon are not the same thing. And by staying in this, talk about that tighter, more because
1: I think, I think people, people conflate the two very frequently. So, talk about why they're not the same thing.
2: Right, so, yield is a total return you should expect to get on investment. If you bought a bond today and you held it until it returned your money at some time in the future, and along the way, you get these periodic interest payments that we call coupons, right? But the literal clipping the coupon concept. But if I bought a debt that, say, it was five year debt issued three years ago, it's going to have a very low coupon, but the, the cost to buy that bond today would just be less than the money that they would return to me. And that di- price is what gets reset daily, and that's what generates its yield. So when you see yields went up, it's because the price of the bonds went down. But the income that you'd expect to receive is fixed. That's the, the, the coupon rate, the, the, the interest rate that was issued when the bond was issued. So if you looked at, say, a three-year bond today, and it's, all right, great. You just recently issued, it's going to pay me 4.5% a year, that's the, or 6% a year. Great. I know exactly what to expect over the next three years. That same thing, if we went backwards in time three years, would have 1%, but its price would just be depressed now. So I'm going to get my 1% for three years, and then all of a sudden, I'm going to get all of that other stuff to make me whole to that 3% number on the last day that I hold the bond, and that the last day the bond is issued right before it matures. And that's, that's what folks tend to forget, particularly when you're talking about investments that are three, five years old or long. Most folks don't stay in the same investment for five years. They're not going to hold all of those bonds long enough to see all those yields. And yes, they will reprice along the way. But when you bought it and you thought to yourself, I locked in a 4% yield. Like when we're talking, uh, uh, Josh was talking about, you take every 10-year bond over 5%. And his answer is right. And he intends to hold those for 5% for 10 years, right? That's a great total return. But most folks practically don't hold their investments that long. And when it sits inside an asset allocation, it's going to be rebalanced. It should be rebalanced. So we, we want to focus on what is that coupon rate because that's the net income that folks are seeing in their portfolios and what they expect from the fixed income market. And that's what we hope to deliver in this much more current view.
1: How closely do corporate rates track the treasury yield curve? Because I would imagine that the corporate yield curve doesn't
2: invert, can invert, can it? Why would it? It can. I mean, it certainly can invert. Right, you're just betting on two things: one, that short term these companies need funding and they can't get it anywhere else, and the corporate market, the investment grade debt market, isn't a charity. Right, if it can get more, it can. And companies might just elect to say, "Hey, look, I'm a better company than my competitors. You're willing to give me money over a ten year time frame, and you're just not willing to do that somewhere else." Right, so you can see those inversions, and they they do happen, and. They don't have the same historical meaning as um, some of the, the more famous yield curve examples do, but they can happen. Um, that said, I don't know that I would do this. That you're that folks should look at it exactly that way. I should like I say, okay, as that spread is tight or where it is today, this is what I expect. Here's the coupon I'm going to get, and I know I'm getting that two-year exposure. And if things change, I can very quickly now sell out of that and, and buy a different part of the credit curve. I can buy into the treasury curve. Or I can opt out and, and go to, some, to the equity markets or, or somewhere else. And I think that's the that's sort of the, the level of control that you haven't had. You've tended to buy a pretty wide index, right? One to five years, three to seven years. And the amount of issuances have really pushed out where that average ended up. And our view was that this wasn't precise enough. And folks could be disappointed. You could see all this great news over the last three months about elements of the bond market, but you own an ETF or you own an index or a strategy that has 90% of its stuff still in these ideas from the last two, three years. So you're only getting 10% of what you expected. And you know that level of precision just hadn't been available. And our goal is to continue to make that available so investors can decide what out, you know how to position themselves for the right outcome.
1: So I would imagine that the natural buyers or interested parties for something like this, or the people that understand the benchmark series story with treasuries, who do you expect to be the buyers of this?
2: You know, we, we hope it's as broad a base as the treasury buyers has been. We know there's a number of folks in the you know, institutional space who are doing elements of this and it's just rote work, right? Who are will be excited to not have to do all of that and they can now take some percentage, maybe all of it, and invest in these products. And, and they, between, say, Z2 and U2, z and u tray, Z10 and U10, can give themselves the pairing they want in you know, corporate and, and treasury space. Uh, we also see a lot of folks in the advisory market who work with SMAs, and anyone who's worked with a sub five or $10 million SMA will know your bane is someone calling up and saying, I need a little bit of cash flow. Well, I own 500 bonds, so I can sell 500 sets of odd lots, or I can change my diversification. And you're not going to like either of those outcomes from a return basis or a spread that you you incurred basis. So this gives anyone in that space an opportunity to have sudden and fast liquidity uh, in this space. And so we think that'll be natural buyer set. And then folks who understand what we're doing, the credit curve, or have a view of credit uh, in general, whether they be retail investors, advisors, institutions, who just look at some of the other indices and say, you know, I spend a bunch of time trying to pair two or three of these things together to try to get an aggregate view I like. Now I can just zone in and put my finger on it today. And we've launched three of them. We're not done. We'll continue to build out the rest of the credit curve in time. We'd like to see the first three get some traction and and see folks adopt you know those and if they do then we you know, we're committed to building out the remainder of the credit curve to give folks the same level of diversification that you can get from the benchmark series one more for me on setting expectations so i
0: think the the biggest difference between corporate bonds and treasury bonds and the reason that there is a spread is because there's a little more risk there you don't you know you get higher yield for higher risk so the one piece is default which is what infinitesimal at investment grade level i would imagine it's pretty it's small it's a rounding error right? at best yeah But the other thing is, if there's a financial crisis, these corporate bonds tend to be maybe a little more volatile, possibly have a little bit of a bigger drawdown. Now, that that wasn't really the case in 2022 when all bonds sold off because rates rose. But in a 2008 scenario or even a 2020, you could see a pretty decent drawdown if you're further out on the duration curve. So maybe you could just talk about that difference between the
2: credit market and the treasury market. Sure. I mean, you should expect to see, historically, because of that spread, a bigger you know, motion that would happen, particularly amplified by more duration. And the credit spread could go bigger. It's at a relatively tame level today. And those things could push out. And given the way that we're managing the, the portfolio and the way the indices are structured, you'll watch those bonds move from one fund down the other as they age out. And you'll see a you know, much more you know, current dividend from the, um, the ETFs that looks like what the current coupon rates are seeing in the market, just because we have to buy in those narrow ranges. So you'll see also a very different response. Whereas a, a a commingled fund that might own things from two to, you know, three to seven years might have, you know, this sort of really unexplainable impact because it, it was, you know, so diversified across the world and it, it might actually be amplified. Whereas here you'd say, oh, well, it looks like credit three years and out is where things really got in trouble, but the short end of credit stayed good. And that's where I really wanted to be. Why would I want to be in a fund that, you know, took, Twenty percent of its credit capital there, and eighty percent the other stuff that didn't work. So this will give you that level of control, but you will see some action happen if if you see a two thousand eight like crisis where rates you know come down or stay where they are. You know you would expect investment grade debt to to start to yield more, and that's okay. Like that's the natural order of things as the market reprices. What is the likelihood that company X is around tomorrow versus the U.S. government? And you know that's that's okay. That's just the nature of the beast. Multiply that by your duration factor. And that's the risk you're going to take. Should that happen and you think things are going to be okay five years down the road, then you're going to want to pile into those markets as they stabilize. Yields come down, spreads come down, and you you profit twice from that trade.
1: Alex, you make the boring fun. Thank you, as always, for coming on. For If people want to learn more about this series, where do we send them? Uh, FMETFs.com. Um,
2: that's got everything you want to know and probably some some more than you want to know, too. All right. Thanks, Alex. We'll see you next time. Thanks, boys. Thank you.
1: Okay.
0: Thanks to Alex. Remember, check out fminvest.com to learn more. Email us. Personal emails, personal responses, Spirits at thecompoundnews.com. See you next time.